Welcome to the Pathologist Cut podcast. This RCPA podcast highlights the critical work of pathologists and the integral part pathology plays in medicine and healthcare. As you all know, 2020 has been a weird and different year, and lots of us have faced many challenges along the way. Since the start of the pandemic, the pathology community has done so much to bring online the massive PCR testing for early diagnosis of the SARS COVID virus. Thanks to timely measured responses from governments on both sides of the Tasman, both Australia and New Zealand have been amongst the world's best in their response to this pandemic. Um, we're joined today by um, Dr. Mike Catton. Dr. Catton is Deputy Director of Melbourne's Peter Doherty Institute and has been part of Australia's frontline response to COVID-19. The Doherty Institute researches and treats viral infectious diseases and was the first place in the world to grow the COVID-19 virus from a patient sample outside China. Mike, thanks for joining us today. What were your first thoughts when hearing about these unexplained cases of pneumonia in Wuhan? I guess we were alert but not alarmed. We, we heard in late December that there was a cluster of something like 40 cases of pneumonia apparently linked to a wet market in Wuhan, but without any deaths and without, and that is specifically said without any evidence of human-to-human transmission. So that sounded a bit like a bit of a rerun of SARS, but without the, the mortality, and it sounded a bit like a point source outbreak rather than something that might go on to transmit how wrong we were. Um, so something really to keep an eye on, but not necessarily to be concerned about based on that early information. Of course, things changed. Mike, you mentioned a point source outbreak. I don't quite know what that means. Meaning that simultaneously a number of people are infected from a common source at the same time, rather than people being infected in dribs and drabs over time, which may be more consistent with human-to-human transmission. So a point source outbreak might be consistent with an environmental exposure in the market, so might be more limited in its potential um, to spread, and that was consistent with the early information um, apparently ruling out human-to-human transmission. That obviously turned out to be wrong. At what point did you realise this was transforming into something more serious, like a coronavirus? But the, the news really um, came in dribs and drabs through January. I think it might have been as early as around the 10th, 12th of January, something like that, that there had been deaths, so it started to assume a more serious tone. And then over the weeks after that, that there was evidence of human-to-human transmission, and that then became really concerning. WHO reached out to our lab on the 10th of January asking us informally if we had a test capable of detecting coronaviruses or novel coronaviruses. So we put two and two together um, and made four thinking that this might be what was going on and it did indeed transpire that way. So that prompted us to go to a group specific coronavirus, RT-PCR that we had. We've got a whole suite of assays designed to detect new things should they arise. 
really things that we developed in the wake of the first SARS and avian influenza outbreaks. So we, we went to international sequence databases of human and animal coronaviruses and checked the test we had against everything that was known because it had been some years since we developed mm. that test and we wanted to check against the latest information. It seemed to be capable of detecting everything, at least in the computer. Um, so yeah. we were bored that we had a test that could detect something new. Um, and it was really only only days after that that the Chinese authorities released the full sequence of the new coronavirus. So we then had the opportunity to compare our test to the actual virus and also we made, we ordered some PCR primers that we knew would detect um, that specific virus. So it only takes days to get PCR primers manufactured these days. So we were pretty confident early on that we were well-placed should there be Australian cases. So, Mike, the, the data came out of China with the code for the virus. So what, what happened next in Australia? Well, um, in, in small numbers, ones and twos, um, people returning from Asia, China, um, who had respiratory illnesses in various state jurisdictions began to be tested quietly. Some of those made the media and there were fairly overblown headlines about such and such a person is in such and such a hospital being tested. And then finally, the the Friday night before Australia Day weekend, as all pathologists know, it's always a Friday night. We, we were actually just sitting down in the meeting room to plan the roster for working through the weekend. And there were two scientists hovering at the door um, looking serious and with the news that we had what looked like a first positive case, which was a return traveller who was being cared for in Monash in Melbourne. So we, we went on through that evening till about four o'clock in the morning doing more tests and sequencing the, the PCR products because it's the first case in the country, so to be sure of and sure. But I think pivotally, about six o'clock, my head scientist, Julian Druce, inoculated some cell cultures um, with as big a volume of that sample of, um, that was positive on the RT-PCR as we could muster. And part of our preparedness is at all times having some flasks of cells ready to go should there be something interesting or of concern. And so really the sample went from its initial test to intercell culture really quickly in that was probably part of the story of the success. So it just seems staggering that then by the end of that weekend, you had diagnosed the first case in Australia. You had um, got a live cell culture up and running and viable, and you'd done and you'd sequenced it. You know that's um, unheard of, really. And um, is that the way for future pandemics and future viruses? I think um, this pandemic is in so many ways um, a pandemic of firsts um, with how the next generation sequencing has been used to epidemiologically study the virus, the speed with which vaccines and tests are being developed. Uh, Lin Fa Wang, actually a very famous virologist, was giving a presentation contrasting the timelines with SARS-1 and this outbreak and how much more compressed the timelines are mm. so obviously reflecting technological development but also greater preparedness and experience mm. you know we're just able to respond quicker and mm. more effectively so um yeah look it's it's the way of the, the future i think so virus in the lab then you started 
being very generous in the true yeah. Australian way and and Antipodean way. So so what was the what was the altruism there? What was the motive for getting it out there? It was experience. It was um, notably with SARS one, but but other subsequent outbreaks as well. With SARS one, the the lack of willingness of institutions to share particularly isolates of the virus, but reagents in general was notable. And it was a real barrier to scientific collaboration. Um, and um, we noted that strongly and, and had a view that things would be much better if it wasn't like that. So the Chinese had the virus, but there were clearly um, some barriers internally there to sharing. Um, we now had it. We were in a position where we could share we really wanted to be seen to do that, to do it and be seen to do that and send a message how this pandemic should be approached. And I don't know that that, that was the reason. It's, the theme was certainly taken up and it certainly has been an incredibly collaborative approach to this pandemic, which is a contrast to past serious outbreaks. So I think it's been a very, very positive evolution in the way people have responded. So it sounds like you've been planning for this outbreak for a long time. How, what, what's gone into the planning process for this? First and foremost, our job is to detect the virus. So the preparedness has been the tools that will enable us to detect the unexpected and diagnose mm. new viruses. So those broadly reactive RT-PCR tests, but also an automated workflow that would let us push through um, significant numbers of samples. As it's turned out, we've, we've ended up testing numbers of samples that we couldn't have believed we were capable of. Um, and then a front end to that workflow of containment labs, um, because what we're presented with might be at the moderate end of the lethality scale, or it might be highly lethal. So we've got the physical containment level two labs, like any sort of hospital diagnostic lab, but we've also got PC3 for treatable but dangerous viruses and then the PC4 suit lab for um, untreatable dangerous viruses. So any of those front ends to the laboratory can receive and process samples and render them in a, in a state that we can then put into the automated PCR workflow. So that the, the logistics of um, getting samples from the front door through to the report at the end and the workforce facility, all of that um, issues that pathologists will be very familiar with in, in any testing process, preparing that with a mind to it being available to cope with an outbreak of anything that might be expected or unexpected. So how, how are we faring compared to other countries? Look, I think Australia, look, and of course I'm biased, but I, I think Australia's done really, really well. Um, to all evidence, that first case at Monash Medical Centre was the first case in Australia that we detected. So there's no evidence that we had cases or transmission in the community before that. So we were capable of quickly, um, on a case definition grounds, detecting um, mm. potential case, testing and identifying that case, culturing the virus and we're not to share it, to characterise and confirm it. Um, we pretty quickly over the weeks that followed that detection had rollout of test capability in all the Australian states and territories and, and in New Zealand. 
know, so we played a role in helping that. Mm. Some like South Wales and Queensland were were already underway. Others access, you know, inactivated control material from us and advice on primer sets. Um, for some like New Zealand, for a time we supported with diagnostic testing. So now there's sort of high throughput capability in, in New Zealand. Um, that was all done pretty quickly. Um, so all states and territories in Australia and New Zealand, so Australasia, um, had test capability up pretty quickly. And if you compare that performance to the United States or um, Europe, it's very, very favourable um, mm. positioning of our capability compared to what others achieve. So I think a real pat on the back for Australasia. So, so testing is, is sort of a point of difference as to how we've we've fared with um, managing the COVID pandemic. Definitely. And the public health responses um, has been very successful as well. Victoria and New Zealand have, have shown that even with an extremely successful testing and control strategy how easy it is for a small cluster to develop and then a small cluster become a large number of contacts and, and spread. It's really showing us what the, the benchmark of how we need to achieve going forward to, to keep managing this. And, and a lot of those decisions are guided by laboratory tests. Yeah. Look, everything starts with a laboratory test. It really does. You know, there aren't too many viral infections where you can stand at the foot of the bed and make a diagnosis. It just does not happen. It's all about the laboratory. We've been talking about the role of the laboratory and genomics at really helping contain and control and, and just sort of monitor this whole pandemic. And we, we, we're looking at the future with genomics again. Do you have any sort of thoughts or messages or tips for, for junior doctors or trainees as to, um, you know, from, from your position, what would you like to say? Um, in, encourage um, people to consider a laboratory career um, in that it is, um, it's where everything begins. Um, there's lots of rewarding careers in medicine, but um, everything um, begins with a laboratory diagnosis. Um, or at least I like to think so. Uh, I think it's a fascinating area. It's an area um, very technically driven, and we're in a phase of incredible technical evolution at the moment with um, the evolution in IT capability, so data crunching capability to to be able to manipulate and analyse data in ways that we and in close to real time and at scale ways that we never could before. So that makes an enormous range of things possible. Um, our, our ability to detect tiny quantities and quantitate those analytes, whether it's you know, uh, a, a molecule in a, in a sample or a, or a whole virus, it's very, very similar. Um, and, and virology sort of morphed in my career from sort of like growing orchids in a greenhouse into this um, era where it's this big data, uh, high throughput, um, incredibly um, uh, penetrating analysis. There is an amazing opportunity to make a difference from the laboratory. Um, and there are, particularly in, in areas like haematology and microbiology, where there is dual training and is becoming increasingly popular, there's the ability to blend a clinical a very patient-centric um, focus with a very laboratory 
centric focus and, and experience how those two things go together. Generally, people, I think, gravitate within that to, to one place or the other. So there are people whose calling is greatest in the lab and may have a research interest that's based around the lab and there are others that are more in the, in the clinic and at the bedside. But, um, but you get to span both things. So um, I was going to put in a plug for virology because you know, <laughs> virology is, as we're demonstrating, an incredibly impactful area of pathology but uh, has a tiny workforce and and the clinical virologist workforce is guys like me from you know from a we were talking about jurassic park before from the dinosaur area um, <laughs> who, who are going to move on so there are opportunities there to be involved in clinical virology and um i think a real workforce gap in the pathologist mm. work so it's certainly an area that would be crying out for people that are fascinated in the lab and in and the research and clinical and that blend that you can put together. Well, um, you're a wonderful advocate for the, the, the clinical virologist as well as the, the number cruncher. And um, it's wonderful just to share some of your passion and some of your stories um, directly out of Michael Crichton a novel. And it's been, um, been great talking with you, Mike. So um, you thank too. you very much. Okay, thank you so much. Nice talking to you. Thank you. You have been listening to the Pathologist Cut podcast with RCPA President Dr. Michael J. For the latest RCPA updates, make sure you're following us on Facebook and Twitter.